You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am continuing with my regular coverage of the series and the history of the Vietnam War with issue number 81 of the book, and a look at the summer of 1973 with coverage of the months of July, August, and September. I'm also going to take a look at and recommend some documentaries about the Vietnam War. A song this time around is Bad Bad Leroy Brown by Jim Croce. The song spent two weeks on the top of the charts in July 1973 and was nominated for two Grammy Awards. It was, sadly, the last hit for Croce before his death on September 20th of 1973. Croce explained his inspiration for the song being an old army buddy telling Helen Reddy in 1973, this is a song about a guy I was in the army with. It was at Fort Dix in New Jersey that I met him. He was not made to climb the tree of knowledge, as they say, but he was strong, so nobody ever told him what to do, and after a week down there, he said later for this and decided to go home. So he went AWOL, which means you take your own vacation, and he did. But he made the mistake of coming back at the end of the month to get his paycheck. I don't know if you've ever seen handcuffs put on anybody, but it was snap, and that was the end for it for a good friend of mine who I wrote this tune about named Leroy Brown. Our comic was published on April 27, 1993. It had a June 1993 cover date and has the third of a triptych by the original nom artist Michael Golden. The cover to issue number 81 shows a huge black soldier who's looked like he's not wearing a shirt firing a huge gun, kind of like Roadblock while flanked by other soldiers. It's the most in-your-face action of the three covers, and I see why they might have saved this for last, because it's definitely the one that stands out the most. Speaking of final parts of a story, this is titled Streets of Blood, The Beginning of the End, Part 3. Our creative team is Don Lomax, Story, Wayne Van Sant, Art, Phil Felix Letters, John Calise Colors, and Edits, whereby Tui, Daly, and DeFalco we open where we left off with Ed, Bulldog, and Dai Wee talking about the Tet Offensive. And as was mentioned in the very last panel of issue number 80, Dai Wee was in Hue at the time. Bulldog explains to Ed that he was in the Arvin 1st Infantry, the Black Panthers, and it was a time when the Arvin were more or less off-duty with, as Bulldog explains, half of them on leave and half of them celebrating the holiday at their base in the Old Walled Citadel. Daiwi then takes over and explains that they were, of course, caught off guard because they were smug enough to think that nothing could really go wrong during Tet. The Americans, on the other hand, were still on alert along with an Australian contingent that Daiwi was working with. 
while he's annoyed to be put on duty with Aussies and some Americans and therefore knows he will miss the Tet celebration, that soon fades when he is on the job and they spot VC and NVA units moving toward and around Huey. They track their movements and then have to make a decision. Do they head into the Citadel or do they head back to MACV, which is much closer to where they're hiding in the bush and watching the enemy's troops and likely not crawling with said enemy soldiers? They start toward MACV and run through the nearby village, getting halfway to their destination before coming across a VC execution squad that has dragged some civilians out into the streets. Ho, who has accompanied Daiwi on patrol, sees this and runs screaming into the streets, but before he can fire, is gunned down by the VC. Luckily for our protagonist, the VC thinks Ho was alone and they don't suspect anything, allowing Daiwi and the Aussies to get the drop on them. They take out three of the VC and track down the fourth. The civilians find another place to hide and our group of now three continue to make their way through the village, along the way spotting evidence of VC slaughtering civilians. As they approach MACV, there's the sound of rockets and they see the MACV being fired upon. We come back into the present as the guys line up for food. Daiwi explains that they originally planned to eat just to just wait out the rocket assault, but decided against it when they realized that the MACV would be expecting a ground assault and they might die under friendly fire as a result. They try radioing, but can't get anyone on the radio, so they're cut off. The VC line up and get ready to attack the base, but they stop because the VC and an NVA officer argue over who was in charge. When they finally start their assault, they are met by counterfire from the American troops posted at the MACV guard towers. Our three men watch as a number of VC are killed and others keep charging with guns and grenades, finally blowing up the main gate. Fortunately for the MACV, the guards are still doing their job and they shoot down any VC that tries to get through that blown gate. The VC fall back and assault from the building surrounding MACV. Daiwi and his allies then decide to make their move and covertly kill a number of VC using guerrilla tactics. It proves effective as they kill a number who were firing on the compound from behind sandbags and from the town's bell tower. They hold the tower throughout much of the combat and the MACV holds up as well until a marine tank column shows up. The result? A success. The VC are more or less driven out of the city, and that allows the Arvin, Americans, and Australians to get a foothold on the area. The VC, while retreating below the bridge connecting the village to the citadel, and leave whomever hadn't retreated behind to fend for themselves. They do not do well getting taken out one by one. Daiwi points out that the hardest thing about it was seeing thousands of civilians get caught in the crossfire. He's then given another assignment, help the Americans retake the citadel in Hue as soon as they can across the river. Daiwi says that he will be ready. We end with Ed asking him if he had a feeling the worst was yet to come, and Daiwi says, oh yes, but it had to be done, and I had a personal reason. I was sick of the jokes putting down Arvin soldiers. You've heard them. Want to buy an Arvin rifle? It's never been fired and only dropped once. To some extent, it might be true. But Arvin troops died well over 2 to 1 compared with the Americans, and their blood was just as red, and their families missed them and grieved for them just as long as any other. Ed says amen, and our next issue box promises the battle for Huey. As preachy as Daiwi's speech is at the end of the issue here, which is Don Lomax essentially putting a point on the end of his story, it's one that works within the context of the war and this series because we don't get a lot of stories from the Vietnamese perspective. Yes, we have gotten a few. Most notably, we had Wayne Van Sant's first time on pencils in issue number seven, which was a brief history of Vietnam and the war told through the POV of a Vietnamese soldier. 
We've also gotten some stories from the perspective of an NVA or a VC soldier or two. But for all of the issues and scenes where we have had all types of American soldiers, from greenies like a young Ed Marks to experienced guys like Ice Martini and guys in so many other roles and even the Punisher, we haven't even gotten a ton of co- we haven't really gotten a ton of coverage of Arvin, who were fighting for their own country. So through the narration of Die, we we get that. And as much as I thought that Don Lomax was being too action hero with this part of his storyline here. I think it's a really well-crafted and really well-told story. Basically, you have a classic war story wherein a small group of people are caught behind enemy lines and have to find their way back to safety. It's a classic plot type, of course, but here it works. Daiwi is working with two Australian advisors and a fellow Arvin soldier, and that Arvin soldier, Ho, winds up getting killed because he just can't take it seeing innocent civilians being executed. That's a natural response, I think, from anyone. And it adds tension to the story without falling into the trap of the rest of them getting spotted in a huge firefight between them and all the VC breaking out right here. I actually liked the way that most of the issue was them just sneaking around and making smart decisions about what exactly they could and needed to do in order to get to safety or get the upper hand. Lomax paces it well. He has them become observers when they need to be, and then gets them into the action around the time of the issue's climax. Wayne Van Zandt's art is really what sells the issue, though. I've always been positive about it, especially during this latter part of the series, but his art really elevates things. For example, when the VC are marching toward the city, and our protagonists are crouched down in tall grass watching them, Van Sant takes the opportunity to give us shots of the men's faces through the grass, plus a wide shot of them and the VC in the background to show how close they actually are. When you're drawing in the age of comics set in underground bunkers with metal walls so that superstar artists don't have to bother with backgrounds, such actual attention to art is not only going to stand out, it's going to be a breath of fresh air. All right, it really wasn't, but as I've already said, I like that they stuck with Wayne Van Sant on the book for as long as they did and try not to 90s it up. The detail he adds to those panels makes the tension real, just as his use of a grid throughout the series where soldiers are sneaking around does too. Van Sant uses different camera angles, he mixes close and wide shots, and he focuses on the action without letting us forget the role our characters are playing. The action during the raid is well-paced, too. He uses a splash page to show the MACV firing back at the VC, and then gives us some really dynamic panels of action. I think, though, one of the best pages is the second-to-last page of the issue, where the battle has wound down and the VC have retreated. There's a panel of our three protagonists walking behind the tanks that help turn the tide, an aerial shot of the bridge being blown, and then four panels of what the real cost of the battle is. Among American soldiers fighting in the streets, we see dead soldiers and civilians as well as survivors who are emerging to find their homes utterly devastated. It has a good impact, and with the speech about the Arvin coming on the next page, it really gets to the heart of the war. Overall, the beginning of the was a really, really strong three-parter, and it's a bummer that there are only three true NOM issues left. I'll talk about what I'll be covering when, since I've only got eight episodes left, but right now I'm going to get into historical context for the summer of 73, as well as ads from the comic, because there's no letter column in this issue. So as always, I'm grabbing this from Wikipedia and and a history site called The History Place. July 1973, uh, the U.S. Navy removes mines from ports in North Vietnam, which had been installed during Operation Linebacker. 
On July 16, 1973, the United States Armed Forces Committee begins hearings into the secret bombing of Cambodia during 1969 and 1970. On July 17, 1973, Defense Secretary James Schlesinger testifies before the Armed Forces Committee that 3,500 bombing raids were launched into Cambodia to protect American troops by targeting NVA positions. The extent of Nixon's secret bombing campaign angers many in Congress and results in the first calls for Nixon's impeachment. On August 14th of 73, United States bombing activities in Cambodia are halted in accordance with a congressional ban resulting from the Case Church Amendment officially halting 12 years of combat activity in Southeast Asia. In the Gulf of Tonkin off of North Vietnam, the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier USS Constellation departs Yankee Station for the last time. She's the last aircraft carrier to operate at the station where American aircraft carriers have been deployed since 1964. On August 22, 1973, Henry Kissinger is appointed by President Nixon as his new Secretary of State, replacing William Rogers. He begins his term a month later. On September 22nd, South Vietnamese troops assault NVA near Ply Ku. And I'll note that Ply Ku is where Linda Vandevanter was stationed through much of the war, as told in her memoir, um, Home Before Morning. And it makes an appearance as one of the more dangerous places in the fourth season of China Beach when they're flash forwarding to the, or flashing back, depending on your time frame there, the episode into the 1970s or later into the 1970s. But that'll do it for historical context. Uh, again, this is kind of winding down on the war, and so the rest of 73 and a lot of 74 is not going to have a lot until you get to 75. But for now, I'm just going to take a quick look at the ads for the issue. There's a uh, progressive Dragon Strike TSR uh, video cassette and board game in here. So these were pretty big back in the late 80s and early 90s, the idea that you had a... Um, some sort of board game or challenge game and a, a tape to play in your VCR to go with it, you know, and TSR took out like huge, huge amounts of um, ad space here. Uh, we have Dragon Strike, the uh, board game, which is basically part of Dragon Month of May 93, and that's on the inside cover, the inside back cover as well. Uh, further along, you have an ad for the new easy-to-master Dungeons & Dragons game, which looks like a little board, little role-playing game type of thing going on here. You have uh, all different modules for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, and other TSR games, and then novels that are going along with them, uh, the Forgotten Realms novels, where there's an offer for a free Forgotten Realms novel, for a, which is a $4.95 value when you buy any TSR adventure game or books totaling $50 or more at participating game, book, and hobby stores in May. Um, and, of course, it's limited to select titles. So that's a lot of the ads. I'm going to see if there are actually any other ads in this issue, which is pretty... Um, pretty low on things uh there is a marvel subscription ad which is just very very generic and then there is the bullpen bulletins stan is not doing anything here because tom defalco is doing his tom talks he calls himself the idiot in chief of marvel comics talking about the letters that he gets and uh, he's very grateful for them. He says that his goal is to stick with the very best comic entertainment. So I don't know if he had to just do this in a rush or was answering to critics or something. 
apparently painter Joe Chiodo was uh, was not given proper credit for one of his recent rap masterworks. He is responsible for the ultra-artistic Spider-Man Venom poster that came out not so long ago. And uh, the Marvel The Ascender, Assembled poster, which uh, you have Bob Budiansky as a special projects editor and Chris Cooper saying it's one of their most successful posters ever. They wanted to set the record straight. Then there was a the Trial of Venom was a mail order thing through a $5 contribution to UNICEF. They received contributions for approximately $140,000, sorry, 140,000 copies of it, and they raised in excess of $500,000. I'm going to read the borderline blather, which means I'm going to have to turn this comic around. We got marriage stock, chaos theory, industrial beat, product portfolio, smoking gun, eye candy, bean counters, Gordian knot, shadow games, safe corridors, data highways, Silent Partners, Feel Good Hits, Confirmation Hearings, Trash Casts, Cultural Materialism, Cuspers, Thought Activated Computers, Schmoozathon, Zamboni, Bottom Feeders, Syntax, Spent Force Domestic Partners, Pattern Recognition, Psychological Toxins, Parting Shots, Blast Trauma. Yeah. So, not pretty thin on the ads, mainly because basically TSR bought all the ad space out for the issue this month. But maybe next time around we'll have a proper letter column and stuff. But that will do it for the nom number 81. I'm going to take a quick break. When I get back, I'll be talking about documentaries about the Vietnam War. So stick around. myself more as a song and dance man, you know. You may call him Alias. You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, where have you been? My blue-eyed son And where have you been My darling young one I've stumbled on the side Of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I've crawled On six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle Of seven-side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain You're gonna fall And I'm back 
I included that Bob Dylan song, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, because it was used in the Ken Burns, Lynn Novick documentary, The Vietnam War, which is one of the five documentaries I'm going to be talking about in brief in this segment. There are quite a few out there, and there are a ton of documentaries available on streaming services like Netflix. In fact, if you'd like to hear me talk rather in-depth about documentaries themselves, you can hear Professor Allen and I discuss them on episode 63 of one of my other podcasts, Pop Culture Affidavit, which is in the Two True Freaks Network and over at popcultureaffidavit.com. Documentaries, of course, are nonfiction films, and many of them serve as educational or informational tools for subjects that we either don't know much about or a deeper look at those we know very well. When it comes to topics like Vietnam or any other national event that has already been reported on extensively, those who are making these films have a tough task of providing us with a fresh angle or perspective. Documentarians about Vietnam also have the task of deciding whether or not they want to pick a side or stay neutral. Granted, I think all documentarians do have that challenge, but when you have an event like the Vietnam War, which was so polarizing for our country, that task does get a little harder. So over the course of the last few years, I've watched a few documentaries about the war. There are some that I haven't seen that are pretty well known. Uh, I will mention here, uh, namely the miniseries Vietnam, the 10,000 Day War, which Time Life distributed on video during the 80s and 90s, and which I'd see commercials for quite a bit when I was a kid. Another which I may get around to in the future is the 1974 documentary Hearts and Minds, a film I've heard was one of the first in a very well-regarded documentary about Vietnam. My first one, personally, that I watched uh, for this project was met with critical acclaim and awards. It won the award for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards, and that is The Fog of War. This was directed by Errol Morris. He is famous for his landmark documentary, The Thin Blue Line, and it's specifically about former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. And the complete title for it is actually The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara. So it pretty much covers his whole life with a lengthy focus on his role in the war, or he wasn't fighting in the war, his involvement. He was kind of one of the architects of the war. And the the origin story behind this is that Morris originally intended it to be the film. Uh, the film was supposed to be an hour-long episode of an early PBS documentary series, an early 2000s PBS documentary series called First Person. However, McNamara talks so much. like He got like eight hours. He came back for, for more um, so that Morris ended up with like a feature film. And McNamara himself is the only interview subject. It cuts between him just talking right to the camera and archival footage of the topics that he's talking about. So World War I, World War II, Vietnam, etc. The film is divided into 11 sections, those 11 lessons that I taught you about in the title. And, and those are empathize with your enemy. Rationality will not save us. There's something beyond oneself. Maximize efficiency. Proportionality should be a guideline in war. Get the data. Belief and seeing are both often wrong. Be prepared to re-examine your reasoning. In order to do good, you may have to engage in evil. Never say never, and you can't change human nature. So Morris frames the film and interview footage around this. At times, McNamara is very candid and very human. At other times, you're clearly reminded of his reputation and the reason he's vilified by quite a number of people. It's an interesting look or an intriguing look at a very important figure in the war. 
And I will say that one of the things I found most interesting were his inside stories about working for both John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and the differences in each's approach to the war. Plus, there are contemplations about the nature of war and how war is essentially run, as well as a lot about World War II that is both frightening and fascinating. Because Morris has what he has nicknamed the Interotron, his interview subjects are always looking right at the camera, so there's this sense that McNamara is looking right at you and speaking to you. You may or may not walk away from it with your opinions on the man changed, but I'm going to say it's worth watching because it's so rare that we get such a candid profile of someone on that level with that reputation. Up next is one that I picked up on random at PBS, which is called On Two Fronts, Latinos in Vietnam. Running about an hour and a half, this premiered in 2015, and here's the description from the PBS website. On Two Fronts, Latinos in Vietnam examines the Latino experience during a war that placed its heaviest burden on working-class youth. Framing the documentary are the memoirs of two siblings, Everett and Delia Alvarez, who stood on opposite sides of the Vietnam War, one as a POW and the other one protesting at home. Other stories deep in the narrative. In Greenlee County, Arizona, miners' children fought and died for their country in devastating proportions. Sisters and mothers took notice in action. A farm worker's son translated his military experience into a career before resigning in protest from his post on a local draft board. I'd come across this originally while scoping out American history documentaries on PBS, and since I was doing this podcast, I decided to check it out. Plus, it was a perspective on the war that I'm not used to getting. Yeah, we've seen this through comics and other media, racial issues in the war, but because of the way it intersected with, say, the civil rights movement of the 60s, but that was mostly between black and white people. So we haven't seen a lot from the perspectives of the Latino community. While the narrative here does follow many of the same beats as a number of stories we often see about towns and communities of America that dealt with their sons going off to war, this also focuses on just how many men from this particular town and some of the veterans keep a memorial to them out in the Arizona desert. I found it compelling, and I think it's still on the PBS website and app if you'd like to stream it. Third on my list is another PBS documentary, though not the big one. This is an episode of The American Experience, which, by the way, happens to be one of my favorite PBS shows. It's called Last Days in Vietnam. This one is about 1975, a part of the history of the war that I haven't covered yet, but I'm obviously going to get to, as I'll be looking at it around episode 97 or so. Here's the description from the documentary's official website. April 1975, during the chaotic final days of the American involvement in the Vietnam War as the North Vietnamese Army closed in on Saigon, South Vietnamese resistance crumbled. City after city and village after village fell to the north while the U.S. diplomats and military operatives still in the country contemplated withdrawal. With the lives of thousands of South Vietnamese hanging in the balance, those in control faced an impossible decision. Who would go and who would be left behind to face brutality, imprisonment, or even death? But as President Ford's administration considered withdrawal, the prospect of an official evacuation of South Vietnamese became terminally delayed by congressional gridlock and by an inexplicably optimistic U.S. ambassador who steadfastly refused to discuss the possibility of evacuation, both for fear of panicking the South Vietnamese population and out of a stubborn reluctance to admit defeat. With the clock ticking and the city under fire, American officers on the ground fell on themselves faced with a moral dilemma, whether to follow official policy and evacuate only U.S. citizens and their dependents, or to break the law and save the men, women, and children they had come to value and love in their years in Vietnam. 
At the risk of their careers and possible court-martial, a handful of individuals took matters into their own hands. Engaging in unsanctioned and often makeshift operations, they waged a desperate effort to save as many South Vietnamese lives as possible. Produced and directed by Rory Kennedy, Last Days in Vietnam was a 2015 Academy Award nominee for Best Documentary Feature. And this is another one you can watch on various streaming services. There are also a number of clips on the website uh, that you can look at for free, which I'll link to the show notes. I personally like this one as well. All right, I like them all. And it's because it does a pretty deep dive into the fall of Saigon and related events. One that I've only seen dramatized or in photographs on famous in, in famous news footage. So to have that long look at what was the final collapse of South Vietnam and the ultimate end to the war, especially after we had withdrawn in 1973 and really turned our attention to other matters such as Watergate in 1973 and 1974, is definitely a service to anyone who's interested in history, especially the history of, this, of the Vietnam War. And by and large, the American experience as a show is an outstanding documentary series. The producers and the directors of the films work their best to produce shows that are well-researched and of high quality, and that also stick to the mission of telling a thorough story that does get into the individuals and humanity behind those pictures and clips we only get glimpses of in, say, wide-ranging shows about the 70s and histories textbooks. The fourth one is one I've mentioned at least once in a very old episode of the show. It's the documentary Dear America's Letters Home from Vietnam. It's actually the oldest of these five. Narrated by a number of actors and actresses, this came out in the mid-1980s on the heels of the success of Oliver Stone's movie Platoon. It is, in my mind, still one of the best documentaries about the war because it literally is the story told from the perspective of those who served as the narrators read letters that soldiers and others in Vietnam wrote to their loved ones at home, while the filmmakers show official military and news footage as well as amateur footage in home movies. The coverage begins during the time the first advisors were arriving in the 50s and ends with the withdrawal in 1973. And you think this might not necessarily work because it is from just the perspective of soldiers that is therefore rather subjective. But that's exactly what's great about it. It's as first-person POV as you can get without being, say, a dramatization of a memoir such as Born on the Fourth of July. Roger Ebert said of the film, there have been so many there have been many great movies about Vietnam. This is the one that completes the story, and I think that's a really great way to put it, as by the time it was widely released in 1987 and 88, there had been a number of movies about the war in theaters. This is a little harder to find. I know it was on DVD at one point, and if you still have a DVD copy or an account through Netflix, you should be able to get it. I definitely track it down. Um, it may be on Amazon Prime for streaming or something, uh, or you might be able to rent it. I haven't checked in recent in recent months. But finally, there is the Vietnam War documentary that's the most recent of this list. It's probably the most extensive. It's Ken Burns and Lynn's no- Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's The Vietnam War. This was a multi-part documentary that aired on PBS about a year or two ago. It's usually and as usually is the case with Ken Burns, it was one of the most thorough looks at the war that I've ever seen. And here's the description on the show's website. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's 10-part, 18-hour documentary series, The Vietnam War, tells the epic story of one of the most consequential, divisive, and controversial events in American history as it has never been told on film. Visceral and immersive, the series explores the human dimensions of the war through revelatory testimony of nearly 80 witnesses from all sides. 
Americans who fought in the war and others who opposed it, as well as combatants and civilians from North and South Vietnam. Ten years in the making, the series includes rarely seen and digitally remastered archival footage from sources around the globe, photographs taken by some of the most celebrated photojournalists of the 20th century, historic television broadcasts, evocative home movies, and secret audio recordings from inside the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations. The Vietnam War features more than 100 iconic musical recordings from great artists of the era and haunting original music from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, as well as the Silk Road Ensemble featuring Yo-Yo Ma. Now, this is one streaming on Netflix, and it was on the PBS app as well, and I recommend checking out the PBS app anyway because it's free and they have a lot of really good stuff on there. I would definitely, definitely, definitely recommend checking this out. Uh, Ken Burns can be hit or miss. Sometimes they are compelling. Sometimes they're an extended nap. I found his two-parter on the Dust Bowl to be fascinating, but there were parts of baseball that I would rather fast-forwarded through, even though I enjoyed that one as a whole. I give credit to his co-producer, Lynn Novick, for making the Vietnam War compelling from beginning to end. Granted, the war itself is compelling, but the documentary is compelling from beginning to end because they don't start with American involvement in Vietnam. They start with the history of Vietnam as a place going all the way back centuries to its origins and then through Southeast Asia's occupation by the French through the latter part of the 19th and early 20th centuries. We see the Japanese invasion. We see the roots of the resistance that would ultimately become the Viet Minh and Viet Cong which begins with fighting back against the Japanese and then the French. We then, of course, get into America's role in the war, and Burns and Novick take time to tell individual soldiers' stories, as well as the stories of people who lived and fought for the NVA and Arvin. You get perspectives of people who were involved in protest movements, those who fled to Canada to avoid the draft. Plus, you get this great final chapter that deals with not only the end of the war, but its aftermath. What was Vietnam like in the late 70s, 1980s, 1990s? What is it like now? How did American vets deal with the war finally being over and fading from the spotlight, even though it hadn't faded from their memory? And how do we memorialize it, and how are we memorializing it now? It's a long haul of a documentary. Uh, it took me the better part of a few weeks to watch it because I just basically put the whole thing on my DVR and would watch a little bit of an episode each night. Um, that seemed the way to go, by the way, because there's only so much you can get. It gets emotionally draining. The The people being interviewed are just like, some of them uh, get just are telling very, very deep personal stories and they have visceral reactions to the events that they're recalling, even though it's been 50 years or 40 years more than 40 years at this point, but it's deliberate. It's deliberate in its storytelling. It's worth your time and investment. It really feels like it was a painstaking process to put it together. And the filmmakers felt that they weren't just making a movie, um, and but they were like completing some sort of mission. And I, I think that it, it really does, um, it handles the war with dignity. It gives you a perspective of both sides that we don't often get, but in a way that is, that is uh, um, enriching to our history. This is something I would show or parts of which I would show in, in, in a class. It's just that good. And I know that in the last 15 minutes or so that I've talked about these films, I'm not really giving them justice. And I'll put some links in the show notes where I can get uh, where I can. And I hope that this has at least piqued your interest somewhat uh, if you're interested in watching any of these. Now as for this show, In Country, we've got eight episodes, seven and a wake up left. 
but there are only three issues of the comic book. So what's going to happen? Well, I've got some specials and other comics coming up. Next episode, I'll be covering one of the classic Vietnam War films, The Deer Hunter. After that, I'll be alternating for a few episodes between The Nam and The Punisher. For the 1990s, there's a trade of Punisher stories called The Punisher and the Nam Final Invasion that were supposed to be issues of the comic if it had not been canceled. There's also a storyline in the Punisher Warzone comic that also uh, guest stars Ice. But I also want to cover two modern Punisher storylines that come courtesy of Garth Ennis, Valley Forge, Valley Forge, and The Platoon. Then I'm going to take a look at my final film of the podcast and the last Oliver Stone Vietnam film called Heaven and Earth, and I'll wrap things up with the last issue of the series plus another special in episodes 99 and 100. I also plan on including a feedback section in episode 99, so if you've been meaning to write in or you have something you'd like to say, send me an email or message me and I'll save it for that episode. I'm actually writing and recording these ahead so that I'm able to get the show back on its regular schedule and get things finished out in 2019. Check Twitter and Facebook for a feedback deadline uh, once I post that, and that'll do it. So come back next time for The Deer Hunter. Till then, you can find me over on Twitter at PopAff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. And as always, thanks for listening, and take care. And what'll you do now, my darling young one? You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard And it's a hard, it's a hard rain are gonna fall